You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is the fourth in a series of lectures under the title, The Logic of Religion. This lecture, I have given the title, Early Christian Speculations. The theme that we have been following in a prior lecture is that with the advent of Christianity, those received the message of Christ within the context of a Greek intellectual framework had a set of problems which their Roman and Greek predecessors did not have. I am addressing these problems as a philosopher looking at the writings of some of the early church fathers. I am a philosopher by trade. I am Jude Doherty, Dean of the School of Philosophy at the Catholic University in Washington, D.C. We have briefly alluded to the work of Justin Martyr and Athenagoras in a previous lecture. And I begin now with Clement of Alexandria as he undertakes a systematic arrangement and defense of the moral and dogmatic teachings of the church. Clement was born about 150 AD and died in 215 AD. Now following Justin Mortar, he maintains on the one hand that whatever is true in Greek philosophy is to be traced to the divine Logos who enlightens every man who comes into the world. And on the other hand, whatever errors we find in Greek philosophy must be attributed to man's erring and weak nature. The true gnosis, that is true knowledge, is not the alleged esoteric doctrine of Christ, but the teaching of the Gospels and the Church which Christ founded. He who assents to the teachings of Christ and His Church without striving, without the aid of philosophy, is in one position, but if one has the aid of philosophy inherited from what we are calling classical antiquity, those inherited notions, concepts, distinctions, gives one an intellectual basis ascent, which is just as the Stoics idealized the wise man, Clement sets up the Christian Gnostic as the idealized type of Christian. Now, a word or two about uh, Gnosticism, it's regarded as a heresy. The Gnostic suggested that all was attainable by reason. And already in the third century, we find the Bishop of Lyon arguing against the Gnostics who would substitute knowledge for faith. Irenaeus will say that Christianity is our gnosis, and he points to the inability of unaided reason to come to divine truths. That's rightly so, but he perhaps overstates his case against the Gnostics, not giving them credit enough 
for pointing to truths that are indeed discoverable by reason. Now, Clement, Clement of Alexandria, is important not because he's a great philosopher, but because he attempts to state the relationship of philosophy to theology. As a matter of fact, the 19th century critic Harnack claimed that Clement has turned Christian tradition to a religious philosophy of Hellenistic inspiration. But Clement construes his mission to be teaching the faith to unbelievers rather than defending Christianity against its opponents. Greek philosophy, he maintains, prepares the way and points to Christianity. Philosophy is a good, and as such, it's to be pursued. Who is the rich man, he asked, who is saved? Seneca's man is able to preserve spiritual liberty in the midst of material affluence. But Christ had taught something perhaps not unlike that in a certain respect. The rich man who is saved is to abandon all that is given to the poor and follow Christ, there is, in a way, in Seneca's wise man, something of that. The wise man can live without his riches, to be sure. For salvation, faith is required. And once one is in possession of faith, meaning a body of knowledge, then one necessarily begins to reflect on that, begins to philosophize. And eventually, one turns one's attention to moral problems. There are moral implications. Now, to say that is not to say that faith has replaced philosophy. Philosophy is useful to the Christian in the hands of Clement. It becomes something of a handmaid. The first task of the Christian is to eliminate from philosophy all that is false. Christian wisdom acts then as a kind of selective principle which eliminates error and singles out truth, inherited truth, in order to preserve it. The perfect Gnostic is one with the perfect Christian. The perfect philosophy is Christianity. That's Clement of Alexandria. And there is a school known as the Alexandrians, but we needn't view any other thinker within that school. Now, another pioneer in theology is Origen. Now, he's not regarded as one of the fathers of a church, but he's regarded as an important Christian thinker because of the influence he had. He was wrong on many things from the vantage point of Orthodox Christianity, but he was a bold and speculative intellect who was willing to be corrected. He's an Egyptian, born about 185 AD, died 254. Has a tremendous influence on St. Augustine. And despite his many theological errors, he has always been considered one of the great names in the history of Christian thought. He's a prolific writer, and the works come down to us under various titles. One, on principles, was translated by St. Jerome himself. Origen is regarded as kind of a universal genius, something of a biblical exegete, and a philosopher of the spiritual life.
For him, Greek philosophy is neither good nor bad. It can become either according to the use one makes of it. For the Christian, of course, scripture is the starting point. But the Bible needs to be understood. You get out of it what you bring to it. There is always a literal sense, and since we regard its author as God, we have to take this as true. But the literal sense is twofold. There is the grammatical sense, and then there is the allegorical sense. The anthropomorphism, which we find much in the scriptures, sometimes in the Hebrew scriptures, we find God resembling an Old Testament prophet, walking in the garden in the evening, changing his mind, getting angry, etc. None of the Greeks would attribute all those attributes to God. So the scriptures are full of what we call anthropomorphism, making God over into the image and likeness of man. We can't take that at face value. The words are suggesting something impossible. God, you can't predicate changing his mind. So we have to look for an allegorical meaning. So here, very early now, we're talking about the beginning of the third century, late second century. We're talking about already a hermeneutic, if you will, of interpretation. Origen is one of the first to address the immateriality of God, or to formally demonstrate it. The immateriality of God was taken for granted, but here in Origen we find immateriality an object of demonstration. And his argument goes something like this, if God were material, he would be corruptible and imperfect, because anything in the material order we realize can be destroyed, dissolve. Everything we encounter within life is to some extent imperfect. But we predicate perfection of God, and we predicate incorruptibility of God. God has to be thought of as capable of thought, as possessing perfect spiritual unity. And once you say spiritual unity, you say simplicity. There are in God no divisions. Deposit God as incorporeal is deposit him as unthinkable, since all we know are corporeal entities. Because God is simple and incorporeal, he is beyond intellection, at least as far as the human intellect is concerned. And since God is perfect, he cannot be the cause of evil. Evil becomes then a very great problem for the early Christian. The power of God to origin seems to be limited. And to origin, infinity seems to be a sign of imperfection. Now, Augustine later will have none of that. In talking about the logos, origin subordinates the word to the Father. The Word is but the image of the true God. The Word is reason itself. As such, the Word is the seed of ideas and contains in himself the intelligible world after whose pattern the world has been created.
Now, if you see a little bit of Plato here, you're not missing the context. Now, Origen has to say, as a Christian, that the world was created ex nihilo, out of nothing. No pre-existing matter was required, as Plato's demiurgos required pre-existing matter. But the notion of worlds pre-existing to our own is not repugnant. That's rather interesting. If God is a creator, he's a creator eternally so. He has had effects from all eternity, but our world is not such an effect. We know from Scripture that our world began in time. But nothing prevents us from holding that a series of successive worlds is possible. Unlimited in time, creation is limited in space. Now, that's a bold speculation. We, we don't know that. And when it comes to discourse about man, he has a doctrine there, too. Man is created as a soul united with a body. And that is a carryover from Plato, too, where the soul and the body are really two distinct components of a single entity. Man, in his fallen state, struggles to acquire knowledge. And Origen relates this to the state of paradise. In paradise, man would not have to struggle to acquire knowledge. Struggling for knowledge is a result of the fall. He recognizes a hierarchy of being, and he also recognizes a hierarchy of, as it were, perfection within the race itself. Initially, man has to be conceived as created equally, but free will is responsible for the differences that we find among men. Some have made bad choices, some have failed to live up to their human potential. So the diversity we find in human beings is due to the variety of choices those human beings have freely made. This is an interesting notion, that among the spirits created by God, some have chosen to remain spirit, and some have chosen to become souls. Now, you will not find that in any of the teachings of the fathers of the church. That is, that angelic being had the choice of remaining angelic or becoming the soul of a mortal human. Those who have chosen to become souls this tells us something about our state, perhaps. They've made the wrong choice. It's better to be an angel than to be a human being. I don't think you find any of the fathers saying that. But here, what I am illustrating is an example of someone who possesses the faith, working out of Greek intelligence, trying to understand what it is that he has embraced when he accepted faith. For a spirit to become a soul is to tie itself with a body. And men are spirits that have received human bodies in punishment for a wrong choice freely entertained. Well, then the next question you may ask, and uh, can human spirits fall into the bodies of irrational animals? If you define man as a rational animal, and if angels can fall and be imprisoned in a body, becoming thereby human, 
Is it possible for human nature to become something less than it is? Origen stops there. This doesn't seem to be any evidence for that. Matter stops the fall. Hence, God is not responsible for the evil that is given in the world. Evil is the result of the freedom given creatures. God is just and consequently he must become a judge. And if he's just, he has to punish. His punishments are conceived as but a means of bringing a fallen spirit back to its original state of purity. When evil in the world becomes too great, God destroys the existing world and creates another. Now, what's the evidence for that? He has no evidence. This does not happen at fixed times, but when God's providence wills it. And concerning the future destiny of human souls, Origen entertains two views. On the one hand, there may be eternal punishment. You die, you go to heaven or hell. On the other hand, it may amount to a restoration to a primitive state. Now that's an interesting teaching, that if man is really a fallen angel, then after death, he may return to that prior state, perhaps not without undergoing a degree of punishment. But one thing he preserves, and he's certain on this point, that the body is not to be condemned. You can't condemn the flesh for the sins of mankind, as it were. It's the soul responsible for choices. They have an effect on the body, but the body itself is good. He's not like the Manichaeans that looked upon things bodily, sensorily, as evil or below the dignity of man. Evil lies in the will alone. Now, being in the body is punishment for the fallen angel, but punishment is but a means of restoration. Well, so much for Origen, and we're presenting him as an example of someone who takes his faith seriously and from the vantage point of classical learning and the Christian faith, trying to understand things sometimes really beyond him, but he's recognized uh, through the ages as a bold and speculative intellect, one that threw out a lot of teaching that one either accepted or challenged or rebutted in that fashion is something of a catalyst for many that were to follow him. And one can still read Origen with uh, appreciation, sometimes with amusement. Among the Latin apologists, perhaps we should just at least mention Tertullian, because unlike some of the others, he was adamantly opposed to philosophy. In his Apology, the title we know it by, a major work, his apologetics is leveled against the heretics whom he considers to be the Gnostics and the philosophers. As a matter of fact, this is why I have referred to him. Those of us who honor Aristotle find this amusing that Tertullian would speak of wretched Aristotle. And he raises that question, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord can there be between the academy Plato's Academy and the Church. The true school for Christians is not the Academy, but the Porch of Solomon. 
We want no dialectic. We don't need any philosophy after we have the gospel. Faith is far more certain than reason. The object of faith may be beyond the intelligible. It may in some sense appear absurd, but it is more certain as a guide, both speculative and practical, especially practical for life. We come perhaps to now the greatest of them all, St. Augustine, and we will spend some time with Augustine, but before getting into his thought, perhaps a brief biographical sketch would be in order. His dates were in the 4th and 5th century now, 354 to 430 AD. He's born at Tagost in Africa. At 16, he goes to Carthage for his education. And there he studies Plotinus, a disciple of Plato, to be sure. He studies Plotinus and Christian scriptures. He becomes a Manichaean for nine years. He was considered to be a hearer, a thought pattern that he gave up in 381, relatively young man. It's his contact with St. Ambrose, many would say it's the prayers of his mother Monica, that led him to Christianity. He was baptized on Easter Eve, April 387, by Ambrose himself. And he was encouraged to take this step by the example of Victorinus. Augustine becomes a priest in the year 391, becomes a bishop of Hippo in 395. And one of the interesting things about his relation to Ambrose if you've read Augustine's Confessions, and it's one of the great books of the Western world, a book that we should all read. If you've read those Confessions, you will realize that Augustine attributes everything to Ambrose. Ambrose is teacher whom he first came to study with the purpose of studying rhetoric. And for Augustine, Ambrose meant everything. But I don't think there's any evidence that Ambrose ever learned that Augustine amounted to anything, that he became Bishop of Hippo eventually and became one of the great doctors of a church. That's kind of humiliating to any teacher, perhaps to a pupil, maybe I've got it backwards, that very often the effect that one has is unnoticed in oneself or even in one's pupils. I have students who don't even know the names of their teachers something that scandalizes me since I can practically name the teachers of my life from kindergarten on. But at any rate, what we're discovering here is that the doctrines of Christianity and the doctrines of Athens, let's use the terms Jerusalem and Athens to represent the two outlooks, are coming together or being fused sometimes in interesting ways as with Origen and with Augustine, whom we're about to look at in a way that is time transcending. We're talking about St. Augustine, who stands as a kind of watershed between two worlds, the classical world passing away, the Christian world coming into being. We're talking about a convert to Christianity, a convert who becomes Bishop of Hippo, and a convert who has a tremendous amount of influence 
on Christianity in the centuries to follow. We'll later talk about St. Thomas. Of all the authors that St. Thomas quotes, Augustine is, of course, the most quoted. Augustine's two famous works, though he wrote many others, but the two that are, have been incorporated, as it were, into the canon of the great books of the Western world are The City of God and his uh, Confessions. One thing that we might note is that Augustine writes in a kind of lively vein. His writings are accessible to, uh, let's say, those who have not been trained in philosophy. Augustine is writing for a general audience in his time. And when we come to St. Thomas, if the comparison is not out of place at the moment, we'll find that St. Thomas was a university professor. He was talking mainly to students. And the books that he wrote have that character. They're prepared as textbooks. Well, there are sermons of Aquinas, but his philosophical and theological works were prepared for an audience of students within the University of Paris, mainly. Augustine wrote, besides these famous works that at least everybody has heard the names of, he also wrote commentaries on the Old Testament, on the New Testament. He wrote a work that comes to us as On the Teacher, another on free will, another on belief. Philosophically, he is a disciple of Plato. Well, indirectly. To be more precise, we would have to call Augustine a Neoplatonist because between Plato and Augustine, there was Plotinus and others of the school known as the Academy. A prime insight or text for Augustine is a text that can be interpreted in a multiplicity of ways, but what is important is that Augustine interpreted his way and that had an impact. The text is where God is revealing himself to Moses in language, the language of being, you might say. When asked who he is, the Lord replies, I am he who is. And for Augustine, that means self-existent being. And he could add the cause of the existence of things. That text influences Augustine's thinking on God. He conceives God as being, as the one of Plotinus. The one and being are identical. Augustine uses the same language as Plotinus, but their thinking does in fact diverge. It may not be too strong to say that it becomes poles apart. Now, God, as Augustine conceives him, is eternal and immutable, as opposed to the temporality and the mutability of things. God creates the world out of pure love. God spoke, and since his word was both his will and his power, the world came to be. The world was created ex nihilo out of nothing, presuppose only the existence of God. And all things that God wills are good. Interesting for Augustine, God creates all things at once. The account of Genesis in the Bible 
is a metaphor. The history of the world is but an account of a progressive unfolding. The history of the world, that, that includes angels too. They too were created. But Augustine recognizes that in angels there is uh, an element of spirituality, but angels he regards as mutable. There is in angels even an element of matter, that is mutability. And he talks about there, if God exists in eternity, the mode of existence or the time framework for angels is avum, A-E-V-U-M. Corporeal beings consist of matter and form. Matter cannot exist without some form. Matter is made to be what it is by the form that it has. Taken in itself, matter is neither being nor pure nothingness. Now, all of creation participates in the divine ideas. These are imitations of their models in the divine intellect. Now, that doctrine is clearly Platonic. We didn't make too much of that in our earlier lectures. But Plato has ideas existing in a world apart, separate from the demiurgos and the matter. And those ideas are, as it were, archetypes. And things participate in archetypes in varying degrees. Uh, take an archetype, uh, a dog or a horse. Not every dog possesses all the perfections possible to the species as a whole. And the same is true with any plant or with any other animal. Each participates in a varying degree in the possibilities characteristic of that species. But with Plato, the characteristics possible do in fact exist in a unified way in the archetype. Augustine takes the ideas that Plato talks about, the archetypes, and puts them really into the mind of God. And they become the creative ideas of God, not existing in a world apart in the light of which God creates. They are in the mind of God as archetypes. So created things participate then in the divine ideas. They are but imitations of their models in the divine intellect. The analogy here is obviously between the artifact and the artist. So there is in nature a hierarchy of being. God, angels, man, animal life, plant life, the mineral order. Talking about man, Augustine will say that each and every one of us is to some extent a reflection of the perfections of divine being. We most resemble the divine, of course, in our intellectual and volitional abilities. Man is a compound of soul and body. Neither the soul nor the body alone constitutes man. And yet Augustine also defines man as a soul which uses a body. Now that too is Plato. The soul has neither extension nor dimension in space. You can't see souls. The soul is incorporeal. The soul knows by immediate self-knowledge 
It's aware of living the life of an intelligence. I know that I am because I know that I think and that I live. Now, what is the relation of a soul and the body? In Plato, there are two things. In Aristotle, the notion soul and body are not really correct. There is no body apart from informed matter. So Aristotle will contrast form and matter, not so much soul and body. Body is already ensouled material, if we're talking about a living thing. And I should mention that every living thing in this classical tradition adopted by Augustine, every living thing is composed of soul and matter. Two components there, a dog or a plant can be said to have a soul. So we can talk about a vegetative soul, a sentient or a sensitive soul as we would find in animals, and then a rational soul as we would find in human beings. What is the relation of a soul and body? If you make them two things, then you got a problem. Aristotle didn't make them two things. He made them two principles of one thing. But in the Platonic tradition, you have a problem. The soul seems to be separate. It's aware of all that goes on in the body. When the body dies, the soul continues to live. Now, that's an important teaching in Christianity. It's clear there. There are intimations of immortality in classical learning, but it's clear within Christian learning. The soul is both spiritual and subsistent. That means it can exist in itself. It's not dependent upon the matter. It makes the matter to be what it is, but it's not dependent upon the matter for its existence. That's the meaning of subsistence. And since it's immaterial, as a subsistent thing, it's incorporeal. The body cannot act on the soul since it's axiomatic, and this again is Greek doctrine. The body cannot act on the soul because the material cannot act on the spiritual. It's the other way around. Spirit can influence matter, but matter can't influence the incorporeal, the non-material. What happens in the body? This is now getting us into Plato's doctrine of knowledge. I told you that religion is complex when we start it off, that it's based on a lot of notions which have to somehow or another be brought together. And in this treatment of the early Christian fathers reflecting on what they have been given through the scriptures is evidence of that complexity. What happens when the body is noticed by the soul? The soul, through its own activity, creates what we call sensations. Sensation is nothing other than the response of the soul to a corporeal motion in the body. Well, you bump into a chair, somebody punches you, you're aware of your body. And the same is with all sensation, whether it be violent or whether it be the sensation of smelling a rose. Sensations are not passions undergone by the soul, but they activate the soul to recognize what's going on in the body. In some sense, however, sensation being an activity of the soul can be predicated of the soul. When the soul notices what's going on in the body, you can predicate that noticing of the soul itself. Sensations have as their proper functioning 
the warning of the soul of some changes that take place in the body. They do not represent to the soul the nature of things. Since the nature of material beings is a changeable one, no pure truth can be expected from sensations. Now, it would seem that Augustine would end up, as a result of this doctrine, being a skeptic. With Aristotle, although everything that we encounter is particular, what the intellect is able to do as a result of a process of abstraction is to see the common element in things that exist outside the mind that are alike, essentially. And we abstract the whatness, the quiddity, the nature from that which may be accidental. If you're looking at a human being, whether they're young or old, tall or short, fat or lean, dark complected, light complected, somewhere in between, you abstract from all of that to get the notion human nature. And uh, human nature is a concept that we predicate of all human beings. Everybody is essentially alike, though they differ in many respects. Those differences, however, are called accidental. Now, Augustine does not have that doctrine of abstraction. The soul is noticing things that happen in the body. But where does it get its ideas? If the ideas are not produced by a sensation, and they're not, what the senses are brought up against is the individual. Whereas an idea is universal, is abstract, in a way is time transcending. The object of human knowledge can pass out of existence and the knowledge of that entity can remain, but it remains as an abstraction. Things are singular, particular, material. Things exist differently than they are thought of in a conceptual framework. The idea of a thing and the sensation of it are two different things. Augustine has to pull that together, and he does it in an interesting way. God becomes the guarantor of our knowledge of nature. He calls upon God to guarantee the validity of knowledge. Truth has three marks. It's necessary, it's immutable, necessary meaning it can't be otherwise, immutable meaning that it can't change, and eternal, that which cannot change cannot cease to be. If we lose a species through environmental default, the knowledge of that species nevertheless will continue. Things are contingent, mutable, and temporal, and so also is the mind, then how do we acquire this knowledge of which we can predicate necessity, immutability, and eternality? What is the source of that truth? And Augustine answers, not things, not the mind. God is the source of our immutable truth. The only way we can account for these characteristics of truth in the human mind is to admit that every time a human judgment is made, our mind is, so to speak, in contact with something that is immutable and eternal. If I am thinking something that cannot be other than it is, that is to say, if it's immutable and eternal in thought, to say immutable and eternal is tantamount to saying God. The existence of immutable truths in mutable minds is proof of the existence of God.
This proof is confirmed by the common nature of truth. All minds, this Augustine thinks is a significant fact, all minds see truth in the same way. Hence, truth must have a common source. We all know that silver is malleable, that it has certain properties, that it conducts electricity. We know something about its structure through contemporary science, and we all assent to that. Now, how so? Augustine finds a common source in God. This, again, is an example of a first-rate mind, a mind who has accepted the Christian faith as presented to him as true, who is trying to reconcile what he knows from faith with what he knows from reason. In other words, Augustine is developing a theology. It's a theology which was to have tremendous amount of influence for the next 900 years in the West, supplanted only by Aquinas. Of course, Augustine will never be supplanted. We go back to basic sources, including Augustine, just as we went back to the teaching of the Greeks and the Romans. This has a bearing in the area of morality as well. There is moral illumination, just as there is scientific illumination. We come to know the principles of natural law, more or less like we come to know the eternal, immutable, permanent natures of things. But knowing what is right, God has given this knowledge of the law, but knowing what the law is, knowing what is right, is not the same as doing right. Man is not only intellect, but he's also a will. The will must place itself in accord with the dictates of reason if man is to lead a life that we could call a happy life, a good life. The moral life is difficult. Augustine's explanation depends on his reading of Scripture. As a result of the fall, the body rebels against reason. This results in concupiscence and ignorance. Instead of controlling the body, the soul is controlled by it. Now that's kind of interesting, and you might wonder about an inconsistency here. If the body doesn't feed the soul, let's say, the ideas it possesses, well, how is it that the body can control the soul? Augustine traces it to the fall. The fall of Adam was not necessary. It was possible. Adam fell by his own free will. But his free will, Adam can't restore himself. Once fallen, you can't take it back. You've done it. And whatever was done is felt by the race as a whole. Aristotle, for his part, without knowing anything at all about the doctrine of original sin, recognized that man is the only animal in nature that can behave or act against his nature. A dog behaves as a dog, a raven as a raven, flowers bloom and bear. They can't help but doing what they are. But man, through his activity, can become a brute, can become less than man by the choices he makes. So even in antiquity, we find intimations that there is something radically wrong with man. Augustine knows that from his reading of the Bible. So man cannot bring himself back to a state 
in which he existed formally, grace is required. The fall was a movement of cupidity. The return is a movement of love. And Christians are best equipped to make the return journey. Both knowledge and grace are presented to them. Christians are united by a common love. Now, I might add that that notion of common love is not simply Christian. We do find it in the Stoics. We find the concept of the brotherhood of man under the fatherhood of God. That's not distinctively Christian. It antedates Christianity. We find it in the Stoics. We may find it elsewhere, but we find it there. Christians then united in brotherhood, bond of love. They are members of a temporal city, to be sure, but they are also members of an eternal city. That's where Augustine develops that theme, of course, in the city of God, city of man, city of God, counterpoised. There are other thinkers that I think we briefly want to touch upon before we come to Thomas Aquinas. One is Boethius, whose dates are 480 to 524. Another is the Arabic philosopher Ibn Rush. We know him as Averroes, and we will consider what his doctrine of religion consists of. But we'll also say something about Boethius, who was no insignificant figure in the Roman world of his day. He was minister to King Theodoric. Theodoric was the Gothic king in Rome. Boethius was eventually sentenced to death for political reasons. But while he was in prison, he wrote that beautiful little book that we know as the Consolation of Philosophy. As a matter of fact, generations of students are led to see the importance of philosophy by reading Boethius, The Consolation of Philosophy. Boethius also wrote a treatise on divine names, which was one of the best sellers in the medieval world. As a matter of fact, Thomas, in commenting on the De Trinitate of Boethius, gives us one of the best medieval accounts of the nature of scientific knowledge. So we see continuity here, not only in the realm of ideas, but that continuity is generated in part because one generation read another generation. The books of classical antiquity were indeed read by the early Christian fathers and then later by the doctors of the medieval church. We see ideas developing in the flesh as we do our history. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.